0: You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV.
1: Hi, welcome to Culturally Determined on Blogging Heads TV. Uh, My guest, once again, uh, coming back is Daniel Bessner. Uh,
0: Daniel, could you introduce yourself? Sure. My name is Daniel Bessner, uh, and I am a Twitter thinker.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You're a a thinkfluencer. Uh, I'm a thinkfluencer.
0: I participate in the Marketplace of Ideas, um you know just influencing people left and right that's what i do i influence <laughs> <laughs> right and you're also uh you're also an intellectual historian I'm also um, an intellectual in my in my day job i'm a historian of us foreign relations uh and the intellectual history of europe and the united states uh focusing on um modernity roughly speaking post 1789 in europe and post 1865 in the united states <laughs>
1: um and so we're going to be talking about a couple things today, and the first one is an article that you um, co-wrote with Amber Frost um, and was published in Jacobin. Uh, the headline is How the QAnon Cult Stormed the Capitol, um, and I found this piece was interesting, and the last episode I did was actually also with a historian, uh, Bill Black, where we were reacting uh, the Friday after the whatever you want to call it, uh, and I guess that's, this is important in some ways, you, you mentioned... Is this a coup or not? But anyway, so uh, I know we're looking back at this event uh, that the reverberation is still being felt, and um, so the piece that you wrote, I saw—first I saw people uh, directing some flack at you on Twitter, and I think that was not fair flack that they were directing at you because maybe they read one line of the piece or something and decided to make a tweet about it, Um, but your piece is in some ways, I guess, a—from a socialist perspective— looking at the events of the storming of the Capitol and um, thinking about what drove the people to do this and why QAnon is appealing to a certain subset or type of person in 2021 America. Uh, So could you uh, talk a little bit more about the piece?
0: Yeah, so um, I wrote the piece with Amber Frost, who's a journalist who's probably most well-known for um, being one of the co-hosts of Chapo Trap House. But she, she really began her career as a journalist, and, and she's, in my opinion, one of the best writers of um, our elder millennial generation. She's a, she's a wonderful stylist, so it was a real privilege to write with her. But um, Amber and I were just chatting um, about – we were watching the coverage of the, uh, of the uh, storming of the Capitol, of, of, of the riots or the insurrection or the coup. It was referred to variously um, by different people. And we were actually surprised, um, at least uh, the the formulation of the article came like literally the day when it was happening, because it was very clear to us um, that a lot of the people there were, were queuing up. Um, supporters. And it was very strange, at least to us that, um, or at least the coverage that we were watching, that it really wasn't emphasizing the sort of constitution of the uh, of the people who had gathered. You know, wh- what did it mean that they were from QAnon? Were a lot of people from QAnon? Um, so we, we began to just, you know, talk this through. Um, and it was really crucial that the uh, journalist Will Sommer, who was on the ground there, um, was also on Chapo, that week, and, and Amber and Will are friends, and, and Amber and I started talking to Will, and Will's impression, and I don't think I'm saying anything wrong, and Will, if I am, please correct me, but his impression for being on the ground, that it was like Q, QAnon was extremely overrepresented. Um, and that is something that's pretty interesting um, because of what QAnon um, is. Uh, and, and so what is QAnon for people who, who don't know about it? So it's, it's um, what I uh, and Amber argued was that it's really best to think of it as sort of a millenarian-type cult, of which there is a long history in this country, from the Second Great Awakening cults of the 1700s to the famous Millerite prophecy of the 1800s to the various cults of the 1970s, the Jim Jones cult, uh, things along those lines. You could even say a lot of New Age thought was connected to cults, particularly in California, where I am now. And and QAnon, um, at least we thought, is more properly connected to that sort of tradition Uh, That sort of um, American, cultic, millenarian, salvific, apocalyptic tradition um, than it is to, you know, the GOP. Um, And it seemed like a lot of the coverage or at least a lot of uh, a lot of the insinuations of the coverage, um, insinuations made, sorry, in the coverage, weren't quite articulating to our satisfaction what QAnon is and how it really relates to, to what we might think of as normal politics in the United States. Um, so we wanted to write an article, uh, really going into what QAnon is, who comprises it, um, what uh, what do they believe, you know, and what did, what do their beliefs actually tell us about um, this historical moment and you know the, the storming of of the Capitol on January sixth and its relationship to politics more broadly in this country. Yeah, and so that's that's what we what we tried to do in the article.
1: Yeah, so we'll we'll include the link on the blogging head site. Uh, like I said, I found the article interesting and also I saw some of the reaction that I thought was
0: unfair or not accurate based on so could the piece I, just, as a whole. Can I just briefly talk about the reaction very quickly sure. um particularly in this forum because I think blogging heads has been um I mean and I've talked to Bob about this like I think on one hand I think it's right to sort of decry the extreme polarization, uh, and on the other hand, I think it's wrong to describe this the extreme polarization because what is politics if not polarization? And you know, I'm not sure consensus politics has historically been you know the path toward progress in this country. And I might actually say that one of the reasons that we have arrived at the situation we have today. It's due to the legacy of sort of the mid-century consensus politics and its particular failures and its particular idea that ideology had ended, which was reflected in sort of the end-of-history rhetoric of the 1990s. But I, I would say, given on am blogging heads, I think a lot of the uh, – and particularly as my Twitter following has grown, um, I think there are totemic – figures um, on the, uh, you know, that, that people, you know, become associated with particular institutions like Jacobin, for example, and that, you know, if someone publishes something in Jacobin or is associated with Jacobin, as I am, I am a contributing editor there, um, certain groups of people who have organized their political identity around criticizing Bernie bros or socialist bros or Jacobin are not going to take a piece fear, um, seriously and fairly. And I think that um, reflected a lot of the initial response um, to the piece because people took lines like I think mostly people took the very last paragraph out of context and it 's a paragraph I still stand by and it 's a paragraph that makes complete sense in the uh, in the context of the article, but it was just taken out of context and, and given like a very inflammatory reading, which is not what we were suggesting at all, if anyone. Uh, read the article. So it was just interesting, you know, to be to be uh, sort of on the um, receiving edge of a, I think very unfair, and and in fact disingenuous uh, misreadings of the article
1: yeah i mean um the piece is uh on the longer side i'd say uh, you know four thousand five yeah, thousand words um and yeah, if 4, uh, you 000, know yeah. cutting uh oh that's a good estimate that i had um and cutting a you know cutting a paragraph out or something and screen capping it and then dunking on it well that's a time-tested way to get some likes and retweets on twitter and um and you know and the the beat goes on um so we'll, we'll let's let's talk about the piece as it is and kind of you know QAnon and, and your analysis of it so okay so yes so it's clear that some um that QAnon people were like heavily represented in the group that stormed the capital the guy there's the guy QAnon, Q Shaman if that's what he's called in the in the horned thing who maybe became the most iconic person coming through here and he is you know he calls himself Q Shaman so that's that's who he is uh the the <coughs> the video clip of the officer who apparently uh, diverted the the crowd coming up the steps from going towards uh, the Senate chamber. Uh, the, the lead figure in the crowd was wearing a Q t-shirt. Um, and so, okay, some, some amount of people were in, a, in on Q and, or part of Q or something. And, uh, but at the same time, there were other people, the, you know, the so-called three percenters, the proud boys, um, the sort of random MAGA people and, and, and how close the random MAGA people are to the Q stuff is maybe hard to know exactly. Um, but so, like I said in my previous episode with Bill Black, this was a ragtag group and they seem to have,
0: they didn't have. But it, mat- Ra- Aria, it matters if 60% were QAnon. Right. And 10% were Proud Boys. I mean, the difficulty is it's very difficult to get numbers. From as anyone who's studied large mass protest movement will probably never really know. Uh anything that you do, whether it's on the ground anecdotal reporting like we got through Will uh, Will Summer or even arrest records, you know, then you're taking you're making large claims about crowd numbers from arrest records it isn't particularly um, uh, is it particularly satisfying. Nor is it, you know, looking at a picture and saying like there are these various QAnon and non-signifiers. Yeah, and you have, um, I mean,
1: we have, you, what this is not a true cult like Nexium or something where people like live somewhere or sw- swore fealty to one particular person or had a, a tattoo or a uh, something, you know, marked on their skin or something. So you will you have to look at their social media profiles and. So forth. And, you know, there's people now, there's newly elected members of Congress who have posted things positive about Q before they
0: assumed office. Um, Marjorie Taylor Greene, I think, is. Wait, who name. you refer to? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So Bobert is has like, been exaggerated, her connections to Q. She said, like, a vague thing on the record. Bobert a radio is program, the woman but... who
1: who uh, ran a restaurant that was, like, a gun themed restaurant. Yeah. And, I think uh, it was called
0: Shooters. <laughs> yeah. And, and she parlayed <laughs> this like into
1: a uh, uh, successful Congress run from Colorado. And then Bobert is this. Seth Mobert, and then uh, Taylor Green is this woman from Georgia, and she seems more like a general conspiracy theorist. And people looking into her past have found awesome. other like Park, Parkland, the Parkland shooting was a hoax, or Sadie Hook was a hoax, or something like that. So she's more right. like and a I... general practice nut job on the right,
0: and just. Briefly, I think green, it's also important to note, has been with QAnon from the beginning. And so um, it seems that from what we know right now in terms of research, this could change. But a lot of the, sort of the first wave of Q were like typical GOP voters, sort of small business owners type people. And it seems like what ha- what's happened since COVID is that QAnon has exploded amongst new demographics and particularly and so I think that's really critical um to emphasize is that even though Marjorie Telegreen is very much QAnon, their one QAnon, like you said, is not like Nexium. It's it's I would describe it more as a sensibility than a particular, you know, um, you know, institution. Um and then uh and then the degree to which there are like new waves of QAnon happening constantly. Uh and green was like the first wave, and I think the second wave. Particularly the COVID wage is a very different social constitution.
1: Okay, so you've so you've done more research into this than I have. I'll just say, you know, summer. Actually, I had Will Summer on this show. I think it was 2018, and that was still the time where. I we did a segment where I was like, "What is QAnon? You know, what is what is the background? Like, you probably have never heard this before." And we were talking about sort of right wing ferment at the same time. We were talking about Jacob Wool, that guy who was uh, a, a kind of a prankster hoaxer on on Twitter, and he he got kicked off. And so yeah, that it was a, in a mix of sort of wacky things that were happening in the early part of Trump's term, and uh, and Q uh, kept on going, where maybe some of the other ones did not. So okay, so um, so I think t- viewing it as through more the lens of a cult than politics uh, is does make sense to me. Um, it certainly shares more, um, you know, it shares more things with <coughs> with the yeah you know, the the pragmatic cult that we've learned about in the past couple years. I guess it's either Nexium or the um, the cult that was profiled in Wild Wild Country, um, the Rajneeshi cult that right yes um, flowered in the, in the eighties in Washington State or Oregon um, and. So, like thinking about those and where they, you know, they founded a town, and they had a, say, this guy, this religious leader who, you know, was putting forth prophecies and sort of uh, ways of living, and they all had the same color clothing and stuff. So, so these are, you know, that's traditional cult. So, what, so what's different about QAnon? Well, the, um, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's closer to. I mean, the, I, I joked on Twitter, but I think there's the truth to this. I said something like. I feel some sympathy for the QAnon people because I used to be really into the TV show Lost. And after an episode of Lost would come out, I would go to this page that was like Lost Wikipedia and people would be filling in all the little clues and messages from the episode and connecting it to like what this could mean or this little number meant connected to this previous thing. And I was like, Oh, this is fun. And it's a
0: mystery box. That's what it's called. In TV. Yeah. So, so There's JJ mystery Abrams box. mystery yeah. box
1: style of storytelling. And it also reminds me of kind of a, is it called an alternate reality game or something? It's like. Yeah, 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 this, exactly. This idea that, like, sort of someone is setting a puzzle in the real world and you need to go out and find clues that they've set there. And then, like, at the end, you'll get a prize or something. And some of these ran off the rails because they were so immersive and realistic that once, like, the game was over, the people who are running the game were, were like, okay, it's over. And and the people who were playing the game were like, oh, this is just, like, misinformation. Like, the game is really continuing, and it's moving on to this whole new level. So the people, right. so people in queue, there was some person or group of people pretending to be a high-level security <laughs> agent in the, you know, deep state. And it seems to be maybe this guy who lives in the Philippines, uh, actually, in real life. But they were putting out these messages that were somewhat obscure, said something was going to happen, uh, things with, like... Uh, metaphors like, you know, the, the egg is going to hatch or, or something along those lines. And then all the, all the people in QAnon would interpret this and make the connections and be like, oh, the egg represents, you know, the Supreme court and hatching means there's going to be a ruling or something like that. And it was sort of, so it was, it was this weird sort of group, um, you know, mystery solving and coming like something that could only happen in the online world where people are all like sort of working together and building on this thing. And, but sort of the difference is, well, I mean, Rajneesh, the cult leader in Wild Wild Country, seemingly did have some sort of idea or something. And he was, like, doing something, and he was actually saying things. He wasn't, like, pretending to be someone else or something like in... Well, there's this book by um, by John Updike uh, called S, which is a kind of retelling of The Scarlet Letter. It's actually based in part on the Rajneesh cult. But the twist in the end is that the cult leader is not an Indian guru. He's actually like a guy from Queens or something. And, and he starts like, you know, he drops the accent and like says, oh, I, I just do this to get women or something. So it's unclear why exactly. So there is no actual person inside the government who was putting out these messages. Someone was doing it for some reason, for fun, for profit. Uh, for the lulls, we can't know exactly. Yeah, I, I, I don't think
0: they made much money off of it. Um, I, Maybe but, they were, yeah, they so. were
1: selling t-shirts or something on the side. Obviously people were making money, they were making t-shirts and, and so forth and
0: selling jokes. Oh yeah, yeah, stuff. yeah. But the initial impetus, I wouldn't say, was profit-driven in the same way.
1: Yeah, it seemed to be mostly just sort of a joke to begin with, and then it, it got out of control. And, and as, there's some report that initially it was like a group of people who were like li- literally joking around, and then their their account was taken over by this guy in the Philippines. Who, start, who started, like, saying, okay, I can actually do something with this. And and this guy, what is his name? Do you, uh, Ryan
0: something? I, 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 I don't remember, no.
1: He put out a statement, like, the next day that was almost literally saying, um, maybe the real cue is the friends we made along the way. He put out the same. Right. Oh, like, that guy,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. This yeah.
1: is all, like, we, you know, we learned a lot. We, like, well, but let's savor
0: our memories you, and, hey, like... Learn- and like let's move on yeah like, we made some this, real this, friendships and watch
1: the space for like a, a project i'm be working on that will be unveiled soon so this guy seems to have washed his hands of it and if he is the real guy i assume Q will never communicate to the masses ever again but the thing will probably keep on going okay so i i've kind of been babbling about this it's it's so strange and um why why okay so and as people probably know by now it all has to do with this idea that there, there's a cabal of cannibalistic pedophiles in the deep state that kidnaps children, uh, like rapes them, and then murders them and consumes a substance that their body produces to give them some sort of power. And Donald Trump was like working with the military to secretly undermine this group that has been like controlling U.S. history for you know since the end of World War II or something. And and everything was like flowing flowing out of this that Trump was like this savior figure saving the republic. And saving the children, who and, were and that quickly, I think, expand. I mean, I
0: think what's important to emphasize about QAnon is that there's like true heterodox. There's true heterodoxy. You know, there are elements that are are, are more white supremacist and white nationalist and racist, and there are elements that are more anti-Semitic. There are elements that are more worried about Satanism. There are elements that are more worried about cultural Marxism. There are uh, elements that really uh, center the pedophiles. There are ele- uh, elements that don't center the pedophiles. And so I think, like it's um, the way that I describe it to people is that it's more of a, a, a sensibility um, as opposed to a series of coherent beliefs. Because I think one of the, the defining features of QAnon is that it's really um, flowing. You know, it really flows in different directions and, and provides. Uh, something for everyone, if you will. There's there's uh, pastel Q, you know, for like yoga moms. There's, you know, gamer Q and things along those lines. So I think that that's important. It's not organized around a sort of a, you know, a series of of, of programs, you know, like uh, I think I said the other day, the Nazi party had a 21 point program. If I recall correctly, there's no five point program of QAnon or 20 point program of QAnon. And that's by design, because I think it's just um, really more than anything embodies like a total dislocation and total alienation from the American system. And I think that one is able to see that in the fact that, like, when Will Summer was on the ground in DC, you know, um, and I, I actually, this might not have been from January 6th, but when he's been doing reporting, people have said, like, you know, I have cancer, but don't worry, Trump is going to release the cancer uh, cure that's been held down by the cabal, or, or my daughter or son has Down syndrome and they're not getting. Proper care at school, and what Trump is going to do is he's going to make sure they have proper care at school. And so this, like, it's and and all of this, of course, has been exacerbated by the pandemic, which is just you know totally dislocated and alienated people from a system that was already so just dis- they were so dislocated and alienated from that they elected fucking Donald Trump. So I mean, I think this is just like a symptom of this long-term, serious American decline that has numerous causes. I'd highlight neoliberal capitalism and its failure to provide. I'd highlight imperialist wars. I'd highlight long histories of uh, American white supremacy, white nationalism, and and racism and anti-Semitism, and these have all sort of come together in, in, in a miasma of various conspiratorial Uh, ways of approaching the world that I think were uh, very clearly seen on January 6th, while at the same time, what was also seen is that there's no real political program. They got in the Capitol, and they started taking selfies and shits. Um, You know, I I have to imagine that when Mussolini uh, marched on Rome, or when Hitler abolished the Reichstag, things were a little bit different. Yes, Um, yes. So this is, I mean, and so what I found so almost offensive about the coverage of it was sort of pretending that these people were like... um, Coup, coupists who are about to you know seize power and control the military and control the security forces and you know um, destroy the American state when there's just no evidence that they not only had to, they clearly didn't have the capacity to and the fact that basically the military speaking through retired generals said we're not going to do that uh and and but also didn't really even have the will to uh so on on both levels i thought that was failed and given that who's actually becoming president who will who is who is president now sorry who is actually well, the well person
1: how do we know world. it's not the clone biden so this or, is the yeah thing, he like, might be a
0: hologram he yeah might be so hologram
1: so too. so part of the QAnon is like, it's totally detached from reality i've used this example before one of the earliest things that the person posting his Q predicted was that on this certain date, Hillary Clinton was going to be arrested and taken to Guantanamo to be tried and executed, <clears throat> you know, a couple days later after this date, the actual Hillary Clinton is walking around and giving speeches to Goldman Sachs or something like that. And the Q people were like, wait, I thought you said she, she was going to get arrested. And the answer that they came up with was, Oh, that's the clone. The clone is walking around. The actual Hillary has been taken to Guantanamo. So like that was a very early step within the logic of this movement that is just totally detached from any sort of reality, that you and I and most people, even people on Twitter live in where the government is growing full grown clones of, you know, popular politicians and the the, the duplicates are, are walking around and, and giving speeches. And well, well, so Ari, I-, I, would,
0: I would just say I think it's important not to just say QAnon is like out there. I think we live in an age of conspiracy. I mean, what is uh, what is Mueller time? but conspiratorial thinking. What is James Comey is going to save us, but conspiratorial thinking. So I think that it's important to emphasize that this is an age where there's these... Uh, well, those Fauci are both movies. ages.
1: Those are both... Uh, I, I agree those are in the cons- spiritual realm, but those are also savior narratives in the same way that Trump as the savior going to vanquish the right. deep state and arrest the cabal of pedophiles. Um, so I think, I mean, part of... Okay, so you point to neoliberalism and, you know, our foreign catastrophic wars, I would point to um, reality television. So how did,
0: isn't it... Well, what's it, more important? I mean, well, this is where it? your fundamental view of the world is incorrect, because... <laughs> okay, uh, well, let me, let
1: me just, let me just say, lay, say, lay
0: this out. How, isn't okay, it strange sure. that this guy, who
1: was clearly a bozo, got elected? It is very strange, but yet it did happen. Like, how did that happen? Well, like, reality TV played a part, and I think this, like, this is a sort of undercurrent of Q. It was like, wow, like, Trump... This total outsider, somehow, like, he, you know, he bulldozed through the election, uh, won almost every primary, won, won the presidency. Could he have really done this himself? Well, maybe he has some help from the white hats within the military who have been battling the evil part of the deep state for for decades, and actually they're colluding, and it's all, and like, and then we're getting these signals of what's really happening. So part, it's like the cognitive dissonance of how did Trump, this buffoon, become elected president, Like, he must have, there must have been something else going on. You say the failure of neoliberalism and foreign wars. I say the corrosive effect of reality TV. The QAnon people say it's the, you know, it's the white hats, i.e. the good guys within the deep state who are battling the pedophiles. So we
0: all have our own (laughs) explanation. Some are more realistic than others. Well, but I would say, what I would ask people who emphasize culture is that to, to provide culture that sort of independent causal mechanism, to me, just doesn't reflect how history actually unfolds. I believe it was a factor. Like, it's clearly a factor by, like like you said, mystery boxes or reality TV or bringing Trump to the masses. Obviously, that's important. But the question that I think one has to ask themselves are, what are the socio-material actual conditions that make people primed to embrace such a strange conspiracy theory? Right, so if one is looking for causal mechanisms, to me, why operate at sort of the higher level of culture when you could like look at what's actually going on in the American political economy? Okay, well what here are we're getting into the um, you
1: know superstructure and uh, and Marxist but superstructure matters.
0: Superstructure matters, right? But if you're looking at history, I mean, what's happened since the late 1970s? Wages have gone down, credit has exploded. I mean, this it's not like. These these are complicated mechanisms. What okay. happened in the last twelve years? The fina- the economy collapsed, and who was saved? The rich people, and who was not saved? Everyone else. Okay. Well, okay, I mean, so... these aren't like precisely. This isn't. I'm not. I'm not like divining tea leaves here. It's pretty clear. Okay.
1: So, it, um, okay. So we got a lot of complicated stuff happening, you know, in this discussion right now, and of course in the outer world. So, um, you know, the material explanation of history uh, versus like the uh, the Hegelian explanation of history. And where these where these overlap or not. So I am more of a materialist. I uh, strangely not a socialist, but I am a materialist in terms of the like unfolding of history. And you know, material conditions are more more often, um, you know, decide how things play out than like the clash of great ideas or 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 something or like the the great man or something. Um, and so you know, the material conditions in some way did lead to trumping in the position of. You know, but he so Trump is very unusual human. You know, left into the space of the material conditions and like you know, the failure of the Iraq War, the the financial collapse, etc., uh, etc. Cetera, et cetera, like played out, and Trump, you know, jumped into this spot. Whereas if like Trump had like a twin sister or something, uh, like that that person wouldn't be able to do the same thing just because even if they were like one percent different from from Donald Trump himself. So that's part of it. Part of it is, well, um, you know, the uh, 18th Brumaire of Louis-Napoleon or whatever the fuck, uh, like, th- like history is repeating itself, except this time it's a farce. So the, the, the QAnon people somehow miraculously storm the Capitol, they get in there, and I mean, this is like the dream of the extreme leftists for, for generations, is that the masses will finally storm the Capitol and, and take power, but what do they do? They're just taking selfies they're like grabbing like you know the podium podium man uh and um some of them are being violent and um but mostly yeah they're live streaming they're taking, taking selfies they're posing um they're kind of confused I, in the last episode i did i highlighted uh elizabeth from knoxville this young woman who looked to be about 28 years old who said uh you know i just got maced i can't believe it uh we were it's a revolution we're, we're storming the capital like what did this woman believe was going to happen? Like something great, but unclear exactly what, how it was going to happen. So there's a lot of magical thinking involved in this, and it's a lot of, you know, like what is, <laughs> what is reality? Uh, like reality TV gives us one version of reality, but we all know it's fake. The, like, but you people... know, it's also fake.
0: Aria, know it's also fake. Um, sort of liberal institutionalists arguing that like th- there's a there's a we could return to normal, you know, or that there's not significant structural problems with the um with the united states or that the elite the experts knows no know better well, these are like bald only a on
1: only very size. like very fucked up country could have ever produced a donald trump as a human donald trump becoming president <laughs> and then donald trump like uh, inciting his reality altered followers to storm the capitol like this is all further evidence that like this is a very fucked up country and maybe we're past the point of ever of ever fixing it, I don't think Sleepy Joe is going to be the one who's going to be able to do it, although who knows.
0: How, How dare you? So I How kind of, like, you? I
1: think I'm more on your wavelength than than you think. Um, but, yeah, I think, I mean, reality television, like, it is a cultural product, but, like, it has, you know, it has material elements. Like, it helped, like, Donald Trump made a lot of money. He Like, he basically revived his career and was able to make hundreds of millions of dollars and um, turn, like, I've discussed this on the show before, he was kind of it's very postmodern because he was a failed businessman, and then totally. he played a successful businessman on TV and through that act he actually became a successful businessman so that's true well,
0: oh yeah, I would correct you. I think that you misinterpret it. It doesn't matter if Trump succeeded at business. This is where people get wrong. He was successful in the sense that he was super fucking rich, whether that money was real or not, he was able to live rich, and everyone knew who he was so whether like the various trump companies succeeded or whether trump made his name basically selling his made money selling his name which is what he did that's a success and the fact that that's a success in our political economy indicates the rottenness at the core of our political economy okay
1: well i mean he was every if you grew up at, as you and i both did if you grew up in the greater new york city area you knew who donald trump was in the our 80s and 90s yeah, he was, kind, but he was kind of washed up by that point point. He, you know, he used to appear on like the Fresh Prince of Bel Air, he appeared in Home Alone 2. Sex in the City. Yeah, as these City. cameos. Um, but he was kind of a joke, and yeah, he was sort of on the outs. Um, there's this quote supposedly he told he's walking down the street with his daughter, Ivanka, and um, saw a homeless person in the street and pointed and said, That guy has more money than I do because I, you know, I owe a hundred million dollars to the various banks. So,
0: and guess what? It didn't matter, it didn't matter. Well,
1: because he's a very, he's a very talented con artist. Um,
0: but he, he, he... In an economy that promotes con artistry. I mean, like, this is true. our entire economy is basically... A, what is financialization? There is no connection to the real economy. Every 400,000 people are, are going to die of COVID, and the stock market's doing great.
1: Yeah, it's fucked I up. Mean, I mean, that I is I a con artist economy. I agree it's fucked up, and Trump is somehow, like, the postmodern, like, you know, uh golem or something created by, like, the economy of the 80s and 90s. Like, Trump is... If we have to before 2015, if you had to associate Trump with any decade, it'd be the eighties. Like that's when he sort of became who he was. Yeah, sure. And
0: um, yeah, so he, Patrick Bateman based on Trump and stuff like that. I mean, like he was a real figure. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, but if he was washed up before the apprentice. If the apprentice didn't exist, he wouldn't become president. I'm like a hundred percent positive about that. The apprentice yeah. introduced yeah. him. Pe- people who yeah. lived in the heartland of America probably had some sense of who he was because he would appear on Fresh Prince of Bel- Bel-Air playing like the epitome of the rich businessman. But the apprentice created this myth, that he was the guy who would say, You're fired, and he always made the right decision, and it was all edited to make him look like a business genius when he was more of like a bumbling fool. The fact that a bumbling fool could assume that position and people lo- believed it is maybe an indictment of capitalism. In fact, it almost definitely is an indictment of capitalism. But yeah, um, I could say maybe. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> But I would so say, like, yes. The, the would cultural say just, aspect, <laughs> the cultural aspect, uh, this show, uh, culturally determined that I host, like, we had to look at the cultural aspect in creating this myth of Donald Trump, you know, the, the guy, the decider, the, the, um, the guy who would say you're fired, the guy who said I alone can fix it at the Republican National Convention, and, uh, what, people believe this shit because they saw him on television in a game show, you know, pretending to be uh, who he
0: really wasn't. Okay, so... So where, that, what, that correct. That is correct. I think there are proximate explanations for Trump that must be found in culture, but I think like if we're, if we're thinking at the macro level, Trump is not a product of culture. That is how I would put it. But he,
1: well, I mean, he is—he's much more a cultural figure than he is like an economic figure. Like he's not—he's not Henry not Ford.
0: Him? What makes Trump possible? Reality TV is not what makes what makes. Well, Trump he, I mean,
1: his his, his father. You know, giving handing him a company that had a lot of assets from real estate in the Outer Boroughs. and yes. then he has my
0: worked with him in the 30s. And my grandmother knew Fred Trump. She said it was She said he was a very nice man. She, my grandmother's 101, wow. and so I get to talk to her about yeah, about. Uh, she was born during the first Spanish flu, and it looks like she's going to get out of the second uh, flu. But yes, she he's a, he was an Outer guy. Yeah,
1: yeah. So, so. That, okay, so. And in some way, this is like the gets back to the postmodernism, you know, Fred Trump built these apartment buildings in the, in the outer boroughs were like, you know, more or less normal people, middle-class people, uh, rented. He was the landlord and they sent him their rent. He was and, very racist. I want to just want to
0: emphasize very, very racist. Yeah. He seems and like a like bad like, guy like, overall yeah.
1: and he must've yeah. damaged his son, Donald's psyche in, in like myriad ways we can't understand. Um, and, but then, you know, Trump uh, – but, but that – you know, there, there are probably, like, 500 other people who are essentially like Fred Trump, who made a lot of money after World War II building, you know, housing for, like, returning GIs in the greater New York City area. Like, so what enabled Donald Trump? It was some – it was, like, a sense of showmanship, uh, media savvy, uh, manipulating the culture, like, blatantly lying to the press and saying that, you know, his mistress said it was the greatest sex she ever had, and that got in the cover of the New York Post – like it's not like he is this just strange figure who does have these particular talents regarding getting attention, branding, uh, creating an aspirational lifestyle that other people will want. Like this is not just he's not just some standard capitalist or standard, you know, um, rentier figure or whatever the fuck like he he is a strange, you know, strange uh, amalgam of of different talents and stuff. And it was, was much more like, you know, a part of – if you're not from New York City, like, you know, there there's like a 100 real estate families in New York City that control more than – The Kushners. Kush- <laughs> yeah, one of them is the Kushners. And they're like an actual like real estate bar- baronial family. And, you know, there's all these other ones. And the, most, you know, most real estate companies have this really a bland name like related companies or something or two trees. Like they're usually not named after the main person. And then – so no one really connects the dots and they're just – you know, they're a normal billionaire, and they don't try to get on TV all the time or call into Fox News. So that's sort of the normal thing, and then Trump is this like freakish version of it. So I think it is like, I don't know. It's it, there's these. I think there's a lot of weird historical contingency that leads to like the creation of Trump and the rise and fall of Trump. Um, totally. That you know, smarter smarter mm-hmm. minds can can will be thinking about for for centuries. Okay, but we're, we've gone all over the place. Let's move back a little bit towards. something I kind of did disagree with about the piece, which is, you know, I think you have some, uh, you know, empathy for the QAnon type of person who has been, you know, uh, mistreated by neoliberal capitalism. Um, Maybe they are like they or their spouse or something are a veteran of one of our failed foreign wars who came back and, you know, came to realize that, like, their friends died for no reason at all, The the woman who was shot by the police officer, Babbitt, Ashley Babbitt. She was a veteran. Um, and so these people, like, we should sort of, well, you tell me if this is a mischaracterization, like we should feel sorry for them because they've been monstrously misled in various ways. They've been mistreated by the economy and they were like misled by this, by Trump himself and the QAnon phenomenon into believing things that were false. And maybe this type of person, if we show them the truth of like what the economy actually is, they could that type of person could become like the, an ally of the socialist movement. Is, is that accurate or not? That
0: is, that is a misreading. Okay. That is okay. That, that to me is a misreading because what we did and Kai, I'll explain the source of it. In the last paragraph, we see something along the lines of Q people are looking for answers. Socialists have an advantage over this sort of deranged thing because our answers reflect reality. Right. And so sort of speaking broadly, people who took that out of context, uh, have read that again, incorrectly as a saying that Q we must ally with QAnon. Um, let me, I'll take. So I think there are two questions. One, there's the sort of question of personal morality and personal empathy. And then there's the question of politics in terms of personal morality and personal empathy. Everyone can come up with their own decisions. I personally do feel uh, um, uh, empathy for people who are so dislocated and so alienated and are so deranged by this horrible system and pandemic that they have retreated to the insanity of these conspiracy theories. I am personally empathetic. But I don't think one needs to feel or needs to agree with that for for them to realize that this is – for someone to realize that this is an important political problem and that we should uh, seek to understand this phenomenon on its own terms for political purposes, Um, that these people, even though if they're not properly political, uh, uh, propose – sorry, um, um, present – a social and political problem to people who care about this country. So that's what I would say. I think you could actually divorce moral empathy and sort of need for political understanding. And, and I leave, you know, uh, whatever's in someone's heart, that's up to them. Um, I do not think QAnon uh, is in any way, um, uh, is in any way uh, about to be won over to the left uh, through the, you know, the, the enlightening source of American socialism. Um, I think that's 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 ridiculous, and that's also not how politics work. And I, I mean, I think one third of the article, which was on like how to approach QAnon if like a family member does it, emphasizes that it, it says like very clear, clearly that they're they're not about to be, be won over. Sort of this loss, is, loss of faith is going to be very psychically damaging. Um, that yeah, this so, that, like, so this uh, is where the, the constituency.
1: Yeah, this is where for, the cult. For, for the, the parallel yeah. to a cult is probably one of the strongest points. Is like. How do you get if you happen to know someone, a relative or an associate or something, who has fallen into this trap? How do you get them out? Seems similar to like people who leave cults or leave
0: some sort of extreme, like political or and religious you belief. The QAnon, there's message boards of like former QAnon people, right? Which is very similar to what happens with former charismatic cultists, right? You know, and people thinking about that. Um, so just want to say unequivocally, no, the, the QAnon does not represent a basis of recruitment for any left-wing political project. Okay. Unequivocally, yes, the left-wing and any American needs to take this movement seriously and understand what produced it, uh, what conditions allowed this movement to become what it became. That's what we were trying to say in the article.
1: Okay, that that does make sense to me. And yeah, I think there's – a sense both of these people are total jokers they're wearing crazy costumes like this th- they're t- they're rubes they're fools like forget about them they don't matter there's that sense and there's also like you know the arm of the state needs to like come down as hard as possible on these people like we need a new domestic terrorism law to deal with this kind of stuff uh so
0: both those i think are mistaken yeah so i think we do need to well that's already happened Arya. the domestic terrorism has been promoted to a seat on the national security council there is now a domestic counterterrorism specialist. On the National Security Council. So, uh, so what does that mean? Yeah. when people have a seat at the table, guess what? They they want, as any academic knows, when people uh, feel like they ha- need something to say, they fucking say it. And so there's going to be someone at all of these meetings stressing domestic terrorism. And do you think you think that's going to work out for for people on the left or heterodox critics or people of color or Black Americans? I have my doubts. Yeah, um, I, so that's already happens.
1: In in a way, I I agree with you. At the same time, like this event did happen, and they were either. Horribly unprepared for it, or for some reason decided to turn a blind eye to the ferment that, like journalists and other watchers of QAnon, sense was happening. So it's either incompetence or act of malice or something that led them to not put up the like really good fences in front of the Capitol when it was clear something like people were going to try something. So yeah, so and what happened? We don't know
0: yet what happened. I so so the news investigations and,
1: I mean, what is you know? I just, I think maybe. Like, would you agree with this? Like, what are, like, what are the real threats to the the homeland security and and so forth, um, in America right now? Like, we see like infectious disease, like that's a big one that maybe we underestimated before, and it's probably not going to be uh, Vladimir Putin ordering the missiles to be dropped or no, uh, like undocumented workers, a like yeah. the caravans that uh, Mickey Kaus, for example, uh, fears coming from Central America to work menial jobs for sub minimum wage, like. The like the internal threat seems at this point like to be a, a bigger threat than the than the foreign threat to at least the American homeland. Uh, maybe our various allies and assets around the world it, it would be different a different calculation. But like when we're talking about national security, like like these, these these jokers got closer than anyone since you know the British in 1812. So maybe we do need to sort of reorient how well I would disagree
0: with that. I don't think they came close to anything.
1: Well they came physically close. I mean what were they what were they (laughs) actually gonna (laughs) do? We can't we can't know thankfully.
0: This is this is like this civic religion stuff which is like this hollow temple of democracy has been destroyed. Blah blah blah. Okay I wanna bring this
1: this is the point I want you to bring up.
0: That, that's fine. If you like have faith in the American institution because like nationalism has become a religion, that's like totally fine. I, I understand that's like a, a phenomenon of modernity, which a lot of people agree. It's not something that I, I, I'm i a Jew. I don't love nationalism. It hasn't turned out so so great in the past. Um but um I would if you want to do that, that's fine. Um but then that's again separate from the question about how real they came to actually executing power. Well I mean they, like
1: I mean they did not. That's close. a huge
0: difference. They, obviously
1: they came nowhere close to now we're close! Executing <laughs> power, I mean, it's impossible, like, you know, they couldn't make, like, QAnon's shaman was standing at the Speaker's, the, the President of the Senate's booth or whatever, taking a selfie, but, you know, all these people are going to be arrested and sent away for some length like of time, so they were, they, they presented a, I mean, it's the same threat that, like, what, it's not like Osama Bin Laden had any chance of, I like, assuming agree. power in America or something. I agree,
0: and, I agree, and so compare what happened with um, the storming of the Capitol to what happened with Hitler- Bringing the sort of stormtroopers into the parliament as parliament votes itself out of existence. Uh, compare that to Mussolini marching on Rome with tens of thousands of black. Right, shirts. so that's like this is literally the personal, taking over the government. This is that's, the that's what it, that's what a coup is. Right, that's what a coup is. That is not what I'm sorry. I'm getting heated, <laughs> but literally, as as uh, I hate bringing in this personal stuff, but like my much of my family was annihilated in the Holocaust. You know, like th- th- this is this is like not approaching that. The, even though this country is d- disgusting with mass incarceration and immigration and customs enforcement, that's a bipartisan thing. Let's end that bipartisanly, but let's not exaggerate threats to give this security state more power when it doesn't need any more power. And we should, in fact, be doing the opposite, which is restricting its power.
1: Okay, I, I th- that's a coherent point that that does make sense to me. At, at the same time, if we look at this through the postmodern lens, it's like yeah, this wasn't Hitler marching into the Capitol, uh, but people did march into the Capitol, and what did they do? They took selfies. So it's like, they wanted, they projected their image, you know, QAnon shaman, if he is, you know, maybe he'll be selling t-shirts himself someday, and... They'll like, be in
0: jail for a while. I bet this, I bet these guys are going to jail. I think, the, I, the I
1: mean, yeah, there's, there's not, the, the state is
0: not, like, being challenged, There's not a,
1: Yeah, the, the sense yeah. of, like, prosecutorial mercy, I, I don't think will be granted. These Thanks, people,
0: people. Are Years, is but, my prediction. Okay, so I, I want
1: to... Like, Bring up something about like the, you know, the sacred qualities and the temple of democracy stuff. And actually, I I saw a tweet uh, that I and I went back to look for it and I couldn't find it. So maybe I misunderstood it or uh, he deleted it. But it was from Matt Chrisman, in my memory, who is the
0: co-host, another co-host of Chapa Trap House with Amber Frost. And, and a and... great political thinker. I just want to emphasize as someone who studied intellect, Chrisman is actually a real political thinker. Like he's someone that, that is reflecting. He is yeah, he's
1: a serious guy, even though he does this jokey, he does this jokey stuff also. Um, but he was, he tweeted in my memory. I couldn't find the tweet. So possibly it's all wrong or possibly he just deleted it. Something like, you know, the Capitol is not sacred. The Capitol is disgusting and deranged and is the site of like, you know, horrible, um, atrocities against humanity. Um, so I saw that tweet. It seems to be gone. um, and
0: that is... I think he said that he I, I I know what you're talking about. He said it on one of his live streams. I don't think he tweeted. Oh, okay,
1: maybe I, maybe I saw a quote then, but um, yeah. because I don't um, I don't I'm, I only watched one or two of his live streams. But anyway, so that's sort of a perspective one can take that is counter to the like civic religion that eighty to ninety percent of Americans subscribe to. That like yes, like the hollow ground of democracy. Like this beautiful capital, our great architecture, and all these statues and flags, and like this is points of
0: clarification. Why do you think eighty to ninety percent of Americans have faith in, in these sorts of institutions? Uh, I just don't know anything in history that would indicate that that's happened in the last fifteen years.
1: Why, well, I mean, what else? What <laughs> else? Are we gonna, the
0: storming of the Capitol.
1: <laughs> what else are we going to believe in at this point? But like, you know, we're we're taught these things as children, and it like sticks we, with not
0: I don't think we believe in anything. I think that's the truth. Okay, I mean, well, I, I...
1: the average American, you know, likes the American flag Wait. and likes, you know, uh, the Star Spangled Banner and all the other, you know, bullshit that we are taught to believe in as children, and probably doesn't like super care about it. But if they see someone burning the flag, they're they're like, that's bad, and I don't like that. I think that's kind of that would probably be the average American's perspective, even in 2021.
0: Maybe, or maybe the average American is an essential worker who's worried about getting COVID and working three jobs, and the, what's happening to the flag isn't the most important thing on their mind. Well, I mean, I mean if, there if, was a- someone, if you were to ask someone, do you like the burning of the American flag, and they say, no, I don't like the burning of the American flag, I'm not sure that indicates much, frankly. And I think, again, what you have to look beyond is – what people saying polls like that into what people are actually doing, which is joining a conspiracy cult that believes Donald Trump is going to release the cure for cancer. Okay, but that's what people are actually doing. But part of you know, part of QAnon was like they are like
1: you know we are the true the true Israelites. You know we are the like we are bringing the constitution like we're bringing the Constitution back. You know the secular religion of America, the Constitution is the holy word of God. Our saintly founding fathers wrote it divinely inspired by. The lore above. And so, that, you know, there was a lot of Christian, like you said, millenarianism mixed up with QAnon, but like they didn't think they were overturning the state in order to impose a new fascist state. They thought they were rescuing the pure American state right. from the clutches
0: of the evil, depraved, you know, hook nosed. And do you know why Zara. they thought that? Because the American president told them that. That's why they thought that.
1: Well, yeah, it was
0: part of it. He I, was I, hanging it up. He was the president. You know, and yes. how many people believe things that Obama said? No, I think a,
1: the, the natural – the average person believes more or less what the president says more or less most of the time, and the fact that they're – like a, this guy who just lies for no reason at all became president was a, a huge historical mistake. But what I'm trying to say, like they uh, – so there's this, there's like a leftist critique of the United States and the government and our history that says like, you know, like, so, like someone in a like QAnon mask took a shit on the floor of Congress – Right on, motherfucker. Like, like, let's burn this shit down. And that is, like, not a winning message for the majority of the American people. That's, like, a niche message for a certain person. Well, the left person. is not
0: going to win. I mean, like, I, I, the left is in no position to win. So why – why? I mean, that's – okay, so I, I, lefties listening to this, I, I think a lot – I'm not trying to be pessimistic. My, I'm trying, my read of the current American situation is such that the left is a very marginal position – in American politics right now, um, I think demonstrated that like the Hail Mary pass of Bernie Sanders, which was not sort of, you know, built on a foundation of decades of left wing strength and organizing failed. Um, so if the left, I, I think this all like this, like concern trolling over popular political strategy for like the left. I mean, I see us mostly right now, frankly, as like a moral conscience, <laughs> So, I mean, I don't think, like, what I write in the pages of Jacobin is going to then be necessarily translated into democratic policy just based on, like, who who Joe Biden actually has appointed. If Bernie Sanders won, I think we'd be in a different situation. Bernie Sanders did not win. Joe Biden is president, and he appointed no one who is on the left. I'm glad that our government will be run by the executives of Uber and Lyft. I mean, that does make me— Happy um, so uh, I'm not particularly worried about what the left does in terms of uh, its critique of American its, its civil religion you know maybe maybe we could actually begin to help people through that critique question uh, the reality of that religion and the truth of, of facing uh, of placing your faith in it primarily as you keep on saying symbolic politics
1: yeah well, I mean as someone who is you know somewhere between the Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders, as we've discussed in previous episodes in my personal politics, like uh you know. The the type of, like, I, I agree with some of the ends of someone, the policy ends of someone like Chrisman and I think he's a very funny, clever guy. At the same time, you know, uh, like, a movement that is going to capture 50% or more of the voting populace is going to have to, like, wrap itself in... The flag.
0: Like, no, I think that's I don't think you know that and I don't think that's necessarily true. Well, I think, I mean, Joe, I think Bi- Joe Biden is like, you know, Oshawk, so there's like, nothing America has
1: ever tried to do when we're all united and blah, blah, blah. Let
0: me explain. I think there's a big generational difference, frankly. I mean, I think people under forty five who again, what have people under forty five experienced? What have people over forty five experienced? I think I think there's a lot less faith in American civil religion among uh, uh by people under forty five. Um, I think that's probably true, yeah. And so I think that a lot of these things are, are again, generational uh, and that people with different historical experiences come to different political conclusions. And I don't think like the left embracing American civil religion uh, to win over uh, 73-year-olds is necessarily going to be the path to political victory in the long term. I think now the left has lost for the moment, and I don't think it's going to be very influential for at uh, four to eight years. And so then why actually blunt our critique when what we're essentially doing is serving as the conscience of the United States? Okay, yeah, it, I
1: mean that that does make sense and yeah, if, if uh, there's a certain type of person or stance or politics that serves better as a critique of the system than working within the system and you know, the, obviously like the like the host of Chapel Trap House would never be placed within the system or want to be placed within the system. Um and because they
0: are against the system, um, so that that makes sense. They don't like the system, so why pretend to like the system? Right. But uh, again, the Democratic Party has shown zero filthy to the left, even when it's like mainstream and nice. So why would one do that? I do think the Democratic Party is shooting itself in the foot. I do think that unless massive changes uh, come, which they may, they're going to be crushed in 2022, uh, and they're on the risk of losing a generation of voters. Um, so it'll be interesting to see if that is taken seriously. I'm not sure. I, it's so early on. I don't know if it, if it is, but I think both parties are in very precarious positions, incredibly precarious positions.
1: Well, the thing, yeah, I, I see that, but also it's, as I say, it's a two-party system. So um, it, it, unless there's some, unless Trump's MAGA party or something somehow supplants the GOP, like it's, it's an, it's, it is a zero-sum game and whichever one fucks up more, the other one will be rewarded. And then 2022, I just think like if the vaccines work, there is going to be like a Biden boom. It's going to be like the roaring twenties. Once again, everyone's going to be wanting to travel and have sex with each other and run in the streets. The economy is about
0: the economy is about to crash. I mean, the the real estate is about to be destroyed in this country as white collar work changes. Uh, and that it was built on like a shaky foundation. So I I guess
1: I have no idea. Well, I guess, I guess we'll see. I, you know, the, um, I, I think a a Biden boom is more likely than a, you know, a, a second great recession or something, but, um, Let's put it up.
0: What do I oh, yeah. what have do I know? At the market? You think that market is based on a real economy? You think that the, the housing, I mean the housing, housing market real? is
1: insane, but it's kept on – You know, it, it, there there hasn't been uh, – well, you know, I'm not, I certainly have no ability to predict a, a housing crash or anything or else I you would be –
0: You first, folks. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay, so short, uh, the big short, uh, uh, <laughs> once again, based on uh, Tate investors. Advice. Okay, I think we should, you know, we've gone long in this, and there are one or two other topics we could possibly hit. Is there anything else you want to say about the Q, the Q people and the people who stormed the Capitol before we move on to a different topic? No, 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 I've said, I, I've said it all. Okay, yeah, I think we... Should... I would say read the piece. Yeah, read the, the piece. piece. I, rec- I recommend people reading the piece. Um, okay, well, let's, since you are, in addition to being a, a Twitter influencer and man about town, you are a professional historian, and pe- as Trump's term came to an end, uh, people started ranking you know, where is Trump in terms of, uh, uh, the American history. And of course there are all, there's like these rankings that always come out the best presidents, the worst presidents. And so, uh, uh, basically what I saw was where does Trump land in the bottom five of the best presidents list or the top of the worst presidents list. And, um, you know, this was, I th- this is kind of a parlor game for Americans or American historians or people who dabble in, in thinking about American history. What what are your thoughts? Uh, you know, one week after the end of the Trump presidency, where 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 how he's pretty. Like, I think
0: COVID makes him pretty bad. The response to the to the pandemic was pretty awful, and and the hundreds of thousands of American dead is makes Trump, I think, up there up there among the worst, probably a top ten uh, among among the worst president. Um, I, I mean, like it, it's difficult to make like these comparative moral judgments. I would say ob- objectively, as far as that goes, George W. Bush. Um, it did more damage to the world as a whole. Um, you have, you know, uh, some old favorites like Andrew Jackson or Andrew Johnson, who, who you know, slave uh, Jackson, slave owner and and sort of like um, the, the Trail of Tears and indigenous genocide. Awful, awful. Um, it, it's hard to do one to one comparisons over such a long period of time. Uh, Andrew Johnson, obviously, post-Civil War, the bungling of many, many different things. Um, one could argue, depending on how one does it, LBJ in Vietnam, escalating in Vietnam, world historical crime, uh, leading to the deaths of hundreds of thousands of people throughout Southeast Asia, Cambodia, Laos, and Vietnam. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of different choices. And I think Trump would have been one of the sort of, as the old Simpsons joke goes, "What uh, mediocre presidents is sort of a placeholder. Um, but I think COVID, COVID, um, Pushes him to the to the top of any worse presidents lift. It was an atrocious, disgusting response that was unnecessary. That resulted in the deaths of hundreds of thousands of people. Um, so that's that's what I would say. Pretty bad, uh, and mostly the bad, uh, the like truly world historical evil. Um, and obviously, children in cages is also world historical evil. But like these things are sort of comparing various evils. Um, the deaths of hundreds and thousands of people is pretty horrible.
1: Yeah, and I think yeah. um, you know, I, there's. I think as we learn more about what was happening in the Trump White House, our estimation is somehow is going to continue to fall about who Trump is and what he was doing. Because like now people who are not relying on like a white house, like the the amount of leaks that came out of this White House about people like describing Trump as this idiot, you know, child, moron, monster, selfish, narcissist, asshole. Like these are the people who work for him and continue to work for him. And they're talking about him like this, like now that he's out of power, like we're going to find out all the extra things that really he did badly uh and all the like crazy ideas he had that they didn't implement and and so on and so forth so i I doubt that he's gonna like rise on our estimation as as time goes on um so there's that i actually tweeted at one point this is i guess midpoint last year uh is trump the worst american born after 1865 um (laughs) and i think there's a good case for that (laughs) i mean there are people who are like jeffrey Dahmer. i was like well jeffrey Dahmer only killed a couple dozen people um and trump didn't eat anyone as far as we know but um in fact, I'm I'm sure that Trump has not eaten, uh, engaged in cannibalism himself. I'm I'm willing to put that, that marker down. But like once we put slavery, anyone who like may have owned a, owned another human being, um, out. I think Trump does rank as the worst American. And you know G- the George W. Bush comparison. Like George W. Bush caused, like his bad decisions caused more humans to die than Donald Trump's bad decisions. Although as COVID continues to devastate the land, maybe even like,
0: even with even with not comparable but
1: with. but when we look at i think we judging american presidents you have to look at like what they did to americans first i think trump was worse <laughs> towards americans than jersey bush was towards americans well, even so though, I would bush was worse for that. the world than, than trump was for the world at this judging from this vantage point
0: well i would just philosophically disagree with that i mean i think all human life is equally worthwhile and i wouldn't center americans um when making these sorts of judgments but that's just you know a personal yeah um, i actually pers-
1: got into this debate with someone in the same topic, and I was saying, like, you know, if you are a, um, like, if you, uh, like, a fa- if, like, a father kills his his children, that's worse than, like, a man killing a stranger's children. Like, there's some, like, bond that w- that seems to have been violated. But citizens
0: the f- aren't children, and nations the father- Okay, parents.
1: but there's, there's a relationship between <laughs> the president, the commander in chief, you know, the big man up there, that when you, like, do it to Americans, it does seem somehow worse to me, even though I agree that all humans are morally equal. But this is a debate we're I mean, not going to solve right I, now.
0: I just uh, – that it ultimately emerges from one's own uh, particular positions. But I would say the president is just, as the founder said, the first citizen. <laughs> <laughs> he's not my daddy.
1: Well, th- I mean part of the civic religion is that, like, he's all of our daddy and he's kind of like a a philosopher god king. Well, that's the problem. You know, so that's, uh, that's fucked up and that's how we – you know, part of, like, the fact that there's no, like, a king or queen of America, you know, so we invest all this weird – you know, like psychic bag- baggage into the president, and you know, like, do people care? I actually have no idea about this. but I was thinking about this today because it was announced that like the Bidens' their dogs arrived at the White House. Like, in, in countries with the prime ministers, do they care about the pets of the prime ministers, or do they care about like the sovereign's pets, or not? They mean, don't I'm care sure at all. there's.
0: Ex- I'm sure there's an example. There's just this whole nonsense thing about like the first family and blah, blah, blah. But I mean, I'm sure there's examples abroad of, of similar. Right. Because phenomena. people know I that. I mean, that, people care about the Queen's Corgis. Yes, that's what I was that's about to say. The Queen's similar, Corgis, yeah.
1: everyone knows about that. But I don't yeah. know um, if Boris Johnson has any pets. I, I'm not aware of them. There's that cat that lives. Actually, there's an interesting par- uh, thing there. The cat, the cat that lives like either at or near 10, whatever that address is, where the prime yeah. minister's house is. But the cat stays with the house. Um, the cat doesn't go when the so the prime minister prime ministers come and go the cat stays so maybe we should think about that model in terms of like what we worship um uh, as opposed to the person or their individual pets okay so I think um as a non historian as someone who doesn't know anything you know Trump I think I think the storm in the Capitol uh, pushes Trump to number one on the worst list and worse than. Johnson, George W. Bush, Nixon,
0: the, Aria, the president is, is leading up to the this Civil is War. recency bias. This is ridiculous. <laughs> but if we this put everything, ridiculous. if we Worse, had COVID, if we add Johnson COVID, and Jackson, I, I, George
1: could, W. Bush. Well, you could say a couple of positive things about Johnson. He, uh, uh the Voted Rights Act, the Civil Rights Act, the Great Society. Um, you know, he has some pluses in the column there, even though he, like, made a number of monstrous decisions that led to the deaths of millions. Um, I don't really, aside from maybe that, like, that bill they passed that was, like, uh, criminal justice reform, I don't think there's really anything <laughs> in, the, in the positive ledger for, for Trump. It, it's really all negative. And then, yeah, the the president, like, um, Pierce and Buchanan, like, I don't know a ton about them, but the way they basically didn't do anything to stop the forces moving towards civil war, like, that was pretty bad also. Um so I think yeah, I'd say I'd say that was pretty bad. Yeah, um, yeah, but yeah, I mean, and it's just like and it's recency so, bias, so incompetence. We'll, Return we'll a year. Okay, we'll look back on this. Yeah, and we'll we'll, we'll uh, the historians will will decide, of course. Okay, let's um, okay, so we'll leave, we'll leave that one, and let's let's skip the Twitter topic, but let's go on to the topic that maybe we'll get be in trouble, and that, that's talking about um, Mickey Kouse. So. Um, Okay, so Mickey Kouse. Uh well, well,
0: let me say why I cuz I noticed you threw like some serious shade at Mickey Kouse on Twitter like like I was like, "Whoa. <laughs> that was a pretty intense tweet." So I I, I think I DM'd you. I'm like, what, what's what's the deal? What's right. what's going on?" So I always, okay, so yourself. So people who are watching this probably
1: know who Mickey Kouse is because he started uh, he is one of the co-founders of Blogging Heads and uh, left the company early on but uh, has come back in the past year or so doing these weekly episodes with Bob Wright, my former boss at, at Blogging Heads. Um, so I, I come both to praise and to bury Mickey Kaus. So, you know, <laughs> I, I worked at Blogging Heads for like a decade or so. Uh, if, if He was both my pathway towards Blogging Heads and he like created it himself. So if there's no Mickey Kaus, my life and professional career are, are totally different. I got into reading Slate when I was in college. He had a blog called Kaus Files that is one of the first political blogs. So he's, you know, a, a notable media figure just for that as being one of the first like full-time political bloggers and it wasn't an influential, influ- influential blog at the time. Uh, he, when I was reading so uh, early on, he used to link to the blogging heads episodes. That's how I found out about blogging heads. I was not the type of person who would like read old issues of the new Republic, you know, in the, in the library or something. Like I didn't really know that world at all. And so I like th- learned about all these people in the blogosphere through blogging heads, eventually got a job here. This has set like the course of my life. I think, you know, uh, blogging heads is a good thing. Uh, on, it's a great, it's oh, a great thing. I've been
0: listening for years. Overall, it's a wonderful
1: And so we should give Mickey credit for that. And he's also someone who, um, like I was, I was saying to you in direct message, like he does, like he's taken stands that, like, he does kind of live his beliefs in a way that another type of person wouldn't. So he ran for office against Barbara Boxer in, like, 2010 or 2012, or 2014. And he, um, in the Democratic primary, and he, ch- he challenged Boxer with sort of a anti immigrant like anti-immigration platform, and because he um he thought it would be unethical for him to have a blog at Slate and be the candidate and be like talking about it at the same time, he resigned his position there. So he was like the last blogger who was being paid like in America, and he resigned that position because he thought it would be unethical for him to um to like be a, a candidate for public office and be writing on a prominent online platform at the same time. And obviously he like, lost, I don't know, he got, like, 5% of the vote or something, and then he couldn't go back to Slate, um, and then he went to the Daily Caller and was blogging there for a while, and then he wanted to write, a. he wrote a, a piece about how Fox News was soft on immigration at the uh, during the time when, like, Bush was trying to, um, maybe I have my chronology wrong, but, like, there was a brief moment where Fox took the line that, like, there should be comprehensive immigration reform. Mickey wrote something, Criticizing Fox, Tucker Carlson, then the editor of the Daily Caller, uh, removed the piece saying privately to Mickey, "We can't criticize Fox. Like this is the this is the red line we can't cross because um, it'll like I don't know if Tucker was working as a commentator at Fox at the time. It's but part it... of the
0: same crew at the very yeah. least. Yeah. So
1: Mickey said this is this is intolerable, and then he quit that job also. So um, he like you know he believes certain things, and he like lives his just, life. Just a quick question, to...
0: Aria, I actually don't know." Um... Does Mickey have the resources to quit jobs? So clearly he does
1: because he keeps on going. So this is okay. Now we're getting more into the criticism. Okay, so and
0: well, uh, that's just a point of clarification. Yes. Mickey, I love you. I, I don't know much about you, so this,
1: you want to learn more. Clarification.
0: You want to learn more. Um, okay,
1: so um, okay, okay, so, so, so Mickey's. I, as I, I I may have some of these facts wrong. I you know I don't know Mickey super well, but I've been reading him for you know seventeen or so years. Uh, and I worked in behind the scenes of lot sometimes. So his his um, I think he came from a somewhat affluent family. His his father at one point was the the chief justice of the California Supreme Court. So he was a prominent lawyer. Obviously before that, um, Mickey uh, I I believe after his both of his parents passed away, he moved into his parents' house or uh, apartment in Beverly Hills. And so he's you know like living rent free or something. And uh, I assume basically doesn't have a, like spend a lot of money on other things. So he basically has operated without an income for a long period of time because he doesn't like do freelance writing or anything. And he has maybe a Patreon and he's getting some money from the parrot room thing that Bob is doing with him, uh, of like bonus episodes. Uh, but I think essentially he like has like lived a modest life living off of family savings and writing, you know, his, his blog, which still exists in some form a newsletter tweeting and pursuing like what he sees as like the most important thing in the world, which is like preventing comprehensive immigration from, from happening. Okay. Well, yes. so I, was just gonna,
0: be- I was just going to ask Mickey's position on immigration comes from like a left-wing place of like lowering uh uh workers who are citizens' wages. Is, okay, is that correct? I,
1: I think it's a, okay, so um it's it's a mix, as I understand it, um, of both concern about uh the the earnings of like native born Americans at the very bottom, like people without a high school diploma, uh who are being undercut by uh, people who aren't who are working, uh, you know, without papers, and so they can be paid below minimum wage. So that's a concern. He also, in the past, has expressed other concerns which have kind of dropped away. And as I said, like following Mickey for almost two decades, like I've imbibed I've a lot of him. So he used to talk about how there was like a irredentist current in some like Mexican American uh thought or feeling of like the Southwest was once theirs, like, that is true, and at some point, like, it would be retaken, like, a reconquista, and, like, it was theirs all along, and so, like, that was something he didn't want to encourage, and also he's talked about just other sort of cultural things, like, of Mexican-Americans, like, not fitting in to American culture. So that's more, like, a right-wing sort of talking point. Yes, I would say so, yes. In the past, like, you know, five to eight years, like, the number of Mexicans coming to America illegally has dropped, and the number of, of Central Americans coming to america illegally has increased so those talking points about like reconquista or like cultural differences or the fact that people like he used to say a lot that um you know it was different when people were coming across the oceans from europe to live in america because you couldn't just bounce back and forth and keep a real strong connection to the old world because you had to like it was hard to get back whereas Going back and forth between the Southwest American Southwest and Mexico, you could sort of have like a dual, dual loyalty kind of thing, not like explicitly dual loyalty, but like, are you a real American if like you just hop across me- back to Mexico when like jo- the jobs dry up, etc., etc. So these are all like immigration critiques. they everything except the wage critique has has fallen aside as it's become clear that like the, you know the Mexican economy has improved and fewer Mexicans are coming, and it's more impoverished people from Central America are coming. Okay, so. Mickey was, you know, he once he worked for the the liberal New Republic. Uh, he, there's an episode that we'll link to that liberal in quotes. You know, I actually that, guess it was liberal, yeah. Well, you know, unfortunately once, for liberalism,
0: it was liberal.
1: <laughs> he was once, you know, involved in either SDS or one of the groups that came out of SDS when he was in college or law school. And he um, and there's an episode that he did with Doug Douglas Lane from Zero Books, uh, Douglas Lane's podcast talking about his own intellectual journey and how, and what he was doing in college and then how he moved towards like immigration restriction being his main thing. So we can link to that, which I watched and it was interesting. Um, but basically, you know, he was like someone who was as much of a Democrat that he ran for the Democratic seat in the, in California for the Senate um, in 2010 or something. And then like became, uh, jumped on the Trump train and then endorsed him getting and voted for. So he voted for Trump twice um, and he has, you know, I think the, uh, he, so he's one of the people who the events of January 6th at the Capitol somewhat shook his faith in whether, you know, it was a good decision to support, uh, Donald J. Trump over the past
0: five years, yeah, gl- Glenn Lowry, similarly, yeah, Glenn, Glenn Lowry, another person of blogging heads who yeah. seems
1: to have, you know, realized something that they didn't see before there. And, um, but you know, I, I think that the thing that what I tweeted was a comment I left on blogging heads that I screen which we can link to is essentially saying like, you know, the, a pattern with Trump is that there's people out there who see Trump as a tool they can use for their own ends. So they ally with Trump and thinking I'll be able to like manipulate this guy who has this, you know, power to him, this charisma. And somehow I will be able to like, end up on top. Like I, I the, the situation will end up where I will benefit and, um, and Trump will like go away. And, And what almost always happens is that the person who lies with Trump, they end up covered in shit, and Trump keeps on going onto his own thing. So, you know, Mickey is one such person, in a minor vein, because he didn't, like, join the administration or anything, but, like, he, you know, he is now, like, he basically looks like a fool as someone who pursued this, you know, like, monomaniacal commitment to immigration restrictionism, caused him to align himself with Trump, thinking Trump will be the tool that can get this done— you know, Trump built like 300 miles of wall and started this very like harsh, inhuman, um, inhumane immigration enforcement uh, regime that uh, even he, even Mickey, admitted was a giant mistake uh, with the kids and cages and or started it. People argue about whether Obama started or not, but he certainly amped, at least amped it up. And that and now Mickey is kind of like. Yeah, like, you know, tr- something, like, after uh, the after election, Trump went crazy or something. Like, he, got, he just got crazier. Like, no, Trump was always the same. I mean, maybe he got slightly worse, but he's all, like, it, I just, it, it just boggles my mind that very intelligent people like Mickey Cass and Glenn Lowry looked at Trump and weren't, like, repelled by the man's character and what an obvious bozo and fraud he was, and instead were like, oh, this guy, he's going to shake things up or he's going to do something good, and then, but really, like, it, it always just flashes back, there's, there's always a backfire effect, and then Trump Trump goes on to the next grift, and all the people whose lives he ruined are like trying to pick up the pieces. And this is this is like going back to his days stiffing contractors in uh, building uh, bu- building housing in, in New York City. Um, you know, he, he screws everyone over, and uh, somehow emerges unscathed. Uh, maybe he finally met his match when he incited a, a, a mob to storm the Capitol, and he no longer has presidential immunity. So maybe he will not slip out of this one somehow. But, um, you know, but Mickey Kouse, uh will be forever known both as blogging his co-founder and Trump, you know, two-time Trump voter. And I think that's part of his legacy. So Mickey, if you, if you listen to this, I don't think you, you will be, but if you are interested in talking about this on the show,
0: uh, open invitation to come on. Um, but. So what do you attribute that to? What do you attribute that to? to why do you think Mickey supported Trump? I,
1: he did have, he became obsessed with immigration in a way that didn't make sense to me. Like I said, he used to have all these reasons logical or not i don't think fearing a reconquista of the american southwest yes. made a lot of sense but he seems to oh, myself on myself on record
0: i do not fear a
1: reconquista of the american southwest <laughs> right so he used to have a lot of reasons and then it just narrowed to this one reason that had to do with wages uh, and like okay there's a legitimate concern or debate at least about what effect you know an open border on the south has on the wages of unskilled american workers like that's the debate but there's a lot of other like ways one could address this problem a uh, you know a higher minimum wage uh, more unionization. I mean, when I first re- started reading Mickey, he was very anti-union, uh, particularly around uh, the tr- Detroit uh, auto unions, who he thought like right. ruined, you know, American no auto manufacturing. Um, so I'm not gonna. I don't know enough about that. But like, one way to protect American workers is to uh, and their wages is to uh, uh, have them have a union. So, so, that, so there's other ways he could have like confronted this problem if if it really was that he cared about, you know, so much about the like underclass in, in America who were being. It was like, you know, workers from Central America were stealing their jobs or whatever the fuck, like, but he just focused in on, like, the harshest immigration regime possible, and then that became a lie, like, this is synonymous with Trump, so now Trump lost, so now it's go it's bouncing back to the other way, and, like, this is part, like, this, you could have called this three years ago that, like, making Trump and the wall synonymous was going to make it so that Joe Biden was not going to say let's finish building this wall or whatever it was could i could i
0: tell you what i think and i hope bob listens to this because i'm very curious what bob thinks yeah i think that a lot of this is the after effects of sort of 90s end of history liberalism where the idea was that a lot of the major political questions had been solved you know famous Fukuyamaian approach but that you still needed to produce content so you get the rise of like the slate pitch you know, the sort of like counterintuitive, actually, why immigration enforcement is the left wing position. Um, I think that was probably a, uh, a why Iraq is actually left wing, you know, uh, uh, invading Iraq. Um, so I think a lot of this, a lot of these people are just like without a home because I think that was a proper, not a properly political approach to the world. And it was like super of its moment. Um, I mean, John Chait has a perch at New York Magazine, but I don't see people engaging him very much. I guess I I, I don't think a lot of these, uh, that approach, I I won't say individuals really anymore, uh, but a lot of this approach is just not at the center of political discourse. I think it's kind of viewed as like a little bit unserious. And so you have this, um, you know, this this sort of move towards like this, this, it's basically down the rabbit hole of contrarianism. Uh, to a certain degree. I'm not saying that's true for Mickey. um, I'm not saying that's true for Chade even, but I think that's the general outcome of a particular approach to journalism um, that is just very uh, not of its moment, um, and particularly for the people who will be driving politics in the next few decades under 45. Like, no one reads this stuff. Um, So it's kind of interesting where it wound up.
1: Yeah, that does make sense to me, and that grows out of, like, the Mike Kinsley New Republic, of which Bob Wright and Mickey Kaus both came out of there, and slate came out of there, and you know the slate pitch and the the paradigmatic, paradigmatic slate pitch was um, the case against pandas, um, right. which which uh, is ridiculous. It's not serious thinking. Yeah, what Dave Plotz wrote in two thousand and we can link that again. It's, it's just a funny piece, but yeah, this is not. And so uh, they used to do stuff like you know Ronald Reagan was bad, for, but not for the reason you think. It was like he's bad for this other reason. Yeah. And, no, and so yeah, Ronald that was, was just bad. <laughs> right. So that yeah, that sort of like I mean I think contrarianism is it's also like a sort of a personality tick that certain people have, where they're just like, you tell them not to do X and they will do X um, just because that's how they're set up. And so maybe that attracted a certain sort of people. And so the episodes that that Bob and and Mickey do today, a lot of what they did during the campaign was uh, telling Biden, you know, do X, do Y, um, you know, this is not smart. This is going to cause backlash. Mm
0: -hmm. And,
1: um, you know, Biden basically ran a, a, good enough campaign to, to win the presidency. And I don't know if anyone, if he if he had followed the advice that Bob and Mickey were giving him at the time, I don't think he would have done any better and possibly would have done worse. But like, yeah, there, there I think there is sort of just a contrarianism sense that people have carried from, you know, uh, Marty Parks' magazine 35 or 40 years right, ago. Right.
0: Because contrarianism is interesting when there's no political stakes. And in the 90s, it was viewed that there weren't like super political stakes because the United States had basically won everything. In an era where there are a few just like serious political stakes, it just reads like out of time, you know, it's just like atavistic in a sense, you know, it's not vibrant. It's not dynamic. It's not responding to the questions of the age. And so I think you get this increase. I, I think Andrew Sullivan's another, you know, person who like was broadly from that milieu. And oh, I think, he was, uh, the, editor. Maybe I mean, he was the editor
1: of the new Republic after Kinsley.
0: Right. So it's, it's interesting to see like sort of where the new Republic uh, under Kinsey has, has, has gone. It's a very, it's an interesting social phenomenon. You could actually probably write a book about it, and it'd be pretty good. Yeah, intellectual I mean, following history.
1: following the careers of the people who grew out of the '80s uh, New Republic uh, at least would be a good, interesting magazine article. And yeah, a lot of people, um, yeah, there were a lot of you know people who, I mean, the, the the people who were like came on blogging heads in the early days. A lot of them were drawn from Bob and Mickey's social circle. Um, or a professional and you can even at. think
0: of like Stephen Glass, right? Stephen Glass is the extreme of that position where he's just making stuff up to be like as contrarian and like wacky as possible, you know, but it, that that emerges that sort of lying, just like the lying at The New York Times under uh, uh, Judith Miller and Jason Blair emerges from a particular institutional context, you know, and Stephen Glass didn't come out of nowhere. And so the question is, why Stephen Glass? Why at the New Republic? And that's an interesting question.
1: I'm curious to know Bob and
0: Mickey would think of that.
1: There's a there's a parallel to maybe like you know Trump. Like like Stephen Glass somehow had some character defect that like led him to lie. But how did he come to flourish? Like what how what was wrong with the system that allowed him to flourish? In the same way, Trump is like this you know has all these sorts of characterological defects and is a very good liar. And like but what within the system enabled him to rise um, such that he wasn't like selling. You know, fake watches on Canal Street or something. Um, and instead became president. Like that's an interesting right. question. Uh, so yeah, so I, I've been. You know, now that I don't work for Blingz anymore, I feel like I can really let it rip in terms yeah. of expressing my dismay about what's happened to Mickey. And you know, I don't know if he uh, cares about what I, what I think particularly, but um, yeah, I, I just think um, you know, if he really if he really does care about like the state of the American underclass, like he needs to look beyond immigration, or otherwise it just seems like. Oh, all he just doesn't like brown people, and 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 that's it. I mean, he the, the he cites this. Um, it's called um, the Center for Immigration Studies or something. There's this think tank that is run by Mark Corian, and it's kind of the most respectable immigration restrictionist outfit out there. And it, but it, that group grew, was once called Numbers USA, I think, which was uh, grew out of people thinking, like in the '70s, that there's going to be this population bomb, and and all, and all the, um, and like, there's gonna be a Malthusian race against, um, starvation or something, and so we needed to, like, limit, you know, limit both people coming to the first world and, like, uh, you know, reproduction and stuff, so it had this, it's, like, based on this crazy false ideological belief about, you know, the, the, the planet Earth being depleted by overpopulation and stuff, and it's not, like, because, so they're, they're committed to lower immigration no matter what, like, even if... Even it was proven that um you know, you know like wages were not affected at all by uh by uh, immigration across the southern border they would still they would still be against it because it's like inherently an evil thing so yeah, so so that's my piece against Mickey and um yeah, I guess that's it <laughs> but you know what okay i I'm hearing uh, the echo once again of my voice on your
0: yeah, side I think so maybe dog, we should wrap
1: up and hopefully they can fix some of this in post um. Yes, let's end it there. Obviously, there's more to discuss. um, But uh, uh, Daniel Bessner, you are on Twitter. Is it D.
0: Bessner with two S's? Yeah, D. Bessner.
1: And I am on Twitter (laughs) as A-R-Y-E-H-C-W. You can follow us there. You can see us thinkfluencing. um, And (laughs) you're producing actual pieces these days um, in places like Jacobin where you're a contributing editor so people can follow your work there. And you've been on Blogging heads a lot in recent days, because you did a, like a short series with Glenn Lowry about his ideological evolution. I mean, you could do, I think you could do a similar thing with like either Bob or Mickey also, or like how they, you know, I did,
0: Bob, it'd be interesting to do that with Bob. Cause I like challenge. I like like challenging Bob and hearing what he says. He's very articulate and smart.
1: Yeah. And I think Bob is a much deeper thinker than Mickey, like no offense, Mickey, but um, you know, Bob has had a, a bunch of different interesting ideas and reading interesting books. Whereas like Mickey has kind of had like one idea and he wrote one book and that was in 1992, and God knows what he does with his days. Anyway, but if he wants to spend some time talking to me, uh, you know the, the invitation is open. Uh, okay, so let's wrap it up there. Uh, Daniel, thanks for coming on, and um, thanks to our viewers and listeners, and we'll see you again next time.
0: Thanks, Arya. Bye.